Thanks for downloading show 118 of the C-Suite podcast, uh, produced in partnership with Future Brand. Uh, this episode was actually recorded back in August for Future Brand's own podcast channel when we looked at brands within key industries that have a heavy focus on a physical presence such as sports, hospitality, travel and entertainment. We talked about how they are adapting to the concerns over the coronavirus pandemic and the impact of social distancing rules, as well as looking at how they are future-proofing their businesses in a post COVID world. My name is Russell Goldsmith and I was joined by an international panel for this episode. Uh, firstly, online from Washington DC was Aliyah Khan, Vice President of Global Design Strategies at Marriott International. Uh, next up was George Gottel, Chief Creative Officer at Uxus, who is based in Amsterdam. And then finally here in the UK was Sanjay Patel, Managing Director of The 100 at the English and Wales Cricket Board. Uh, during this podcast, we also hear from James Raleigh, Head of Marketing and Commercial at the All England Law Tennis Club, and of course that includes the Wimbledon Tennis Championships as well. Uh, we also hear from Charlotte Williams, VP for Content at Can Lion Festival, and then finally John Timms of MLS Contract, whose company owns the franchise to the Sheffield Sharks basketball team here in the UK. But I began by asking each of the panel members on the call with me to share the biggest impact that the COVID-19 pandemic has had on their businesses, which we thought would set the scene for the wider discussion, and we started with Aliyah. You know, um, working for a hotel company, I think the biggest thing for us has just been getting guests to a point where they feel comfortable coming out again, coming and staying, you know, with this sort of literal unknown and the lack of transparency, it's very easy to want to barricade yourself at home and not, you know, be around other people or travel. And so for us, it was all about, you know, how do you kind of mitigate some of that? Because it's a very real concern, you know. Where do you go? You go to the place that you know you'll be safe and anything outside of that bubble becomes questionable. So, you know, it's been hard for our business, but it's a collective industry and everybody is kind of banded together and we're starting to see the needle move slowly. Uh, so we'll get there. It's a long road ahead, but we will get there. That's interesting, actually. Before I come to the, to the, uh, to the other two here, are you, are you seeing a lot of collaboration then with you and, and other hotel chains? Yes. yes. And, you know, I think at a sort of very, at, when this all started, certainly at a very high level with the senior executives, uh, but secondarily, subject matter specialists, you know, all of us designers are talking to each other. What are you doing? What's working? How is this going? Uh, we're learning from each other. You know, I was recently traveling and, um, I ended up staying with a competitor and it was interesting to see how they handle their cleaning protocols. So I think at the end of it, everyone acknowledges that there's no unique sort of solution for some of this. It's how do you make the mass of the world feel comfortable traveling and, you know, whether they stay with us or someone else, secondary conversation right now, it's let's get people feeling good about what's out there. So of course you learn from each other. Sure. Uh, Sanjay, how about yourself? Yeah, so we were uh, we were all set to launch the hundred uh, in July. Um, ironically, actually, tonight was the opening the opening night of the hundred, uh, which is a new new cricket tournament in England and Wales. Uh, eight new teams, uh, men and women, uh, and we 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 effectively when it went to lockdown the twenty third of March, uh, we had a look at what our options were. Uh, we examined all options from hosting a tournament behind closed doors to hosting a shorter for, shorter length tournament uh, and actually we were left with pretty much only one one decision which was to unfortunately postpone the 100 to 2021 uh, so I guess the biggest impact for us is we, we, were, we were no longer uh, running that tournament this year so quite a huge impact a uh, big impact financially for us in terms of the revenue clearly that we will not get in from our broadcast the sponsorships or match day ticketing revenue and so on. So for us, it's a pretty big impact and something that uh, we're hoping you know to get into 2021. And fingers crossed, uh, we get some crowds back in stadia. Yeah, yeah, indeed. George, how about yourself from sort of like the clients that you're working with at the moment? Well, I mean, I think COVID obviously has accelerated a lot of trends that were already beginning to happen prior to the pandemic. The digitization of, you know, consumers in general is something that has had a huge impact, especially the clients that we deal with and our particular discipline is, in, is working in the physical world. So, for example, one of our clients is McDonald's. And, you know, what Alia said about safety and feeling secure in environments is it takes a it's a incredibly critical especially in the restaurant world so i think COVID has accelerated this idea of contactless 
physical retail kind of experiences. The beauty world, another area, another category that we work in a lot is also highly affected by this. Uh, again, the safety aspect of sampling products. How do you sample cosmetics in a world where you, you know, have an infection rate? Certainly this idea of contactless, more digital types of experiences. It doesn't mitigate the need for physical spaces because I think consumers still love to shop and they, they, you know, as a pastime, it's something that's not going to go away. But how they shop in the future, I think, is definitely going to be transformed. Sure. Alia, lockdown rules are slowly being relaxed as, as we record this, although you know, I appreciate there's obviously concerns of a second peak in, in some places. But as people do start to travel again and companies are, are looking at putting on conferences and seminars, which of course is a large part of, of your business, what do the first phases of post-lockdown look like for Marriott? I say this jokingly, but not. I'm like, I'm so tired of seeing places that look like crime scenes, you know, the yellow and black tape. And I feel that as a ingenious community of inventors and designers and thoughtful people, I think there's smarter ways to do that, right? So now that we're in this world of how do we get people to move through, be healthy, be safe, but feel welcomed, you know, there's nothing more sort of frustrating or disappointing than seeing, you know, the black and yellow tape and thinking, they don't want me here. So it's how do you take the core of hospitality, make people feel welcome. Step one, how do you ensure their safety? Step two. And then step three, and I think this is where it's going to bring out the best in all designers is the ingenuity. You know, how do we get back to a world of meetings? We've been looking at a number of different things. You know, the future of fitness. What is fitness going to be as we move through this? Are you going to go to a hotel gym anymore? What can we bring to you in your room? How does that work? Uh, mini bars. Do you really want to be opening up a mini bar versus what if I brought you something that was curated to your specific needs? And I think the approach is the same with meetings. How do you allow people ways to gather uh, brainstorm, engage, connect, look at each other in the eye, but do it in a way that perhaps is less than conventional. I went to a meeting, literally my first business meeting two days ago, and it was interesting. Look, little tables of two scattered throughout the ballroom. There was plenty of distance, two people to a table, but there was something incredible about being able to look out at a room and look at the gentleman in the corner as he was presenting and look at him in the eye. And it make it reminds you that where Zoom is incredible, there's something about the face-to-face and being able to engage on that level that I think we as a community all have to focus on recapturing. And that's where I think the invention will come. That's the, that's the thought. How do we sort of get back into that world where people feel comfortable enough to do it, but do it in clever ways? But a, l- a large part of that conference experience is the the networking area outside where you've got all the, all the ex- exhibition booths and also like the lunch buffet. I mean, how, how are you going to get around that, that, you know, the issues around that? You all probably remember Yo Sushi, right? And the conveyor belt. Like when you think about it, it's genius. Someone is putting food on a conveyor belt that you are touching and eating. You're not being served it. There's no menu. There's no nothing. At the end, you tally up your yellow, what was it, yellow, mauve, green plates, and that was your total. And I think that's the thinking we're sort of going after. You know, what are the ways that you can be inventive, still deliver experience, do it well, be a little bit memorable, but, you know, also make people feel safe. Is it like the cool little bento box, you know? Is it, are they wrapped and packaged in specific ways? And then, you know, you kind of take that. I joke about them, uh, you know, Moe Chandon does the, um, the champagne vending machine. You know, if I can't go up to a bartender, maybe that's not the worst thing in the world, taking my card and swiping and getting my little flute with my little thing. Um, I think there are ways. And I think what I'm loving is the way people are adapting and changing and being accepting of these changes that in a way that I don't think we were before. George um, and, and Sanjay, have you been back into the kind of meeting environment yet? And and, and if you haven't, how, how are you feeling about going to a, an event or a conference? George, let's start with you. Yeah, I, I, no, not yet. Um, we're still not allowed to meet in, in large groups. But, you know, to Elias' point about this idea of 
you know, feeling safe and being clever and innovative. I mean, we also have to remember that pandemics have happened in the past as well. So it's not like this is going to be a permanent state of terror continuously, but it will transform the landscape and it will transform behavior. And so I think that's where we're going to get the newness. And, and I think the innovation, you know, that Elia just described in terms of new ways of eating and new ways of behaving in a lot of ways, I think it's quite exciting and, and it offers a lot of opportunity. It's kind of like a recalibration of what the experiences have been in the past. Uh, Sanjay? Yes, no. So our office is still closed. So I, I haven't ventured uh, that far away from my, my computer screen, unfortunately. But I love what Ali is saying, I think, because it's about reimagining uh, what conferencing might look like and, and what these spaces are. And, and I think, you know, if, if we had to go to a conference next week, uh, would I be 100% comfortable? Probably not, because I think that's human nature. Uh, I don't think people are 100% comfortable going back to completely normal. However, once you do it once, and if that environment isn't intimidating, and if that environment, as Alia said, doesn't have big red crosses and yellow stickers and so on, and it's done in a way that makes people feel comfortable, and it's done in a way that's really relaxed, I think people will then get back to normal. And look, I think it's a huge opportunity, not for, for businesses actually to completely reimagine what they offer and their customer experience. And I think if you do that, when we do get back to normal, I'd imagine those businesses are going to be doing brilliantly because they would have already thought about how, how does this work for the customer and what is the benefits that I can bring to that experience. Uh, so no, I'm, I'm ventured out, but I'm, I look forward to come to one of Alias conferences. They sound good. <laughs> well, well, what about, I mean, let's stick with you in terms of bringing crowds back to, to sporting venues. How is that going to work, even with social distancing, say, down to one metre? I think um, the way that we're currently thinking about it is if that is our challenge next year, we don't, we don't see it happening this year. I think the best that we can hope for this year is potentially some, some pilots of maybe crowds in, in stadia, which will, will give us a really good blueprint to learn from. But if we're in this state next year, the way that we're going to approach it on the 100 is what is our unique take on it? Yeah, How do we use that to our advantage? So sport very much relies on at the moment is packed stadium, great atmosphere. That's what the TV cameras want. That's what the players want. However, if that's not possible, what is our version? Um, do, we, do we think about reconfigurating the stadium? Do we think about bringing more of a kind of cinema feel into a stadium. And I, I don't know the art of the possible, but these are things that I think as a new competition, which is designed for a family audience and designed to be entertaining, these are the sort of things that we actually need to think about. And if we do it in a way that signals what our brand is all about, I think long-term we could be in a great place because it's, these, are, these are great opportunities to send strong messages about what your brand stands for uh, and that's certainly how we'll, we'll go about thinking about it next year and if it's one meter we're just going to have to make that work um, but the number one thing for us is look public safety that's got to be our number one and then creativity reimagining the experience and making sure when people come they're like wow that, i had a great time i love what you just said because you know you said cinematic and automatically in my head I thought back to like drive-in movies. You know, we, we now live in a world where we're watching all of our content on iPads and televisions. But what about the art of an outdoor movie? You know, we used to do it as kids. You sit with your family on a picnic blanket and you're together, but you're separate. And that aspect of nostalgia, I hope that creatives and people as they start to solve through all of this, you know, forward-thinking technology is so valuable and important. But there's something about the nostalgic thread that often brings things home in an interesting way. And I think the fusion of the past and the present is a, good, is a compelling way for us as a collective to address some of this. Yeah. And sorry, just to, to build on that, if that's OK, that I think there's something around this COVID experience that has, has brought out that nostalgia where people have been separated from their families for a period of time. People have been working at home with more time on their hands. Potentially, people are, are facing sadness around them in terms of potential lives lost and so on. And I think what that does is it makes people think really hard about what's important to them. And I think that sense of nostalgia does come back. So, again, just thinking about how do brands actually tap into that 
I think is, a, is an interesting thought. We're going to hear in a second from, as I said, John Timms of the Sheffield Sharks. But Sanjay, what about if if you can't fill the stadiums? What about the economics of that? For you know, it, that's great for certain sporting teams at the at the top end where they've got the sponsorship and the and the TV rights. But what what about lower down the uh, the leagues? And uh, what what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, look, I guess we we, we sit here in a in a relative position of strength because we've got strong broadcast contracts and we've got strong sponsorship contracts which allow us the investment levels to to actually think about how you reimagine stadia but i can imagine for lower leagues you know that is going to be a real challenge um, and they are heavily reliant on that match day income uh, and if if we go into you know this year's football rugby season or any other sport and there's one metre restrictions in place, let's say, for example, that is 40% of the stadia, I don't think the economics stack up. And I think at that point, I think some sports are going to face serious financial crisis. And that's something that, you know, A, the government's going to have to think through, uh, and B, the sporting bodies that that are in charge of those sports uh, are really going to have to think through how, how do they get themselves through that period if their sport is reliant on match day income. Yeah. Let's listen to what John Timms had to say. So as I said, his company uh, owns the Sheffield Sharks basketball team. So they are one of those teams that don't benefit from TV money. They only get around 1,000 to 1,200 fans buying tickets for the venue. I started by asking how he is going to restart for next season and be financially viable if they can't get 1,000 people into the venue to watch the team. It's it's going to be an interesting challenge, not just for bas- professional basketball clubs in the BBL, but like the Sharks, but for all uh, sports out there that are looking at trying to re-establish their seasons and get supporters back in venues, it's, you know, one of the things that's a lifeline for most professional sports clubs and amateur clubs as well. So we're really looking into it. We're following all the advice. We're definitely monitoring what other countries are doing and looking for good practice and would look to adopt elements of that. Our key thing is we're expecting lower attendance figures because of restrictions on venue capacity that might be put in place. So we're preparing for that. We're looking at platforms where our games can go on more on a pay-per-view platform. Currently, they're available free-to-air. All all games are available free-to-air, but that might move on to a pay-per-view platform to try and obviously maintain income streams coming into clubs to be able to keep paying players and keep the club um, operational and moving forward. So that's really interesting, John. And um, I mean, what's your expectation in terms of what you were getting in terms of attendance at the actual venue to the percentage you know you're expecting to maybe pay and watch online we're expecting people to to be some reluctance to attend mass gatherings just generally in the world going forward and we and 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 attending sports fixtures obviously would be one of those elements so coming to a, a sharks basketball game is going to be really important that we build confidence that it's safe to come into venues and all those things we are anticipating a drop. I couldn't tell you right now what I think that will be. A lot will depend on when the seasons restart, how much confidence is rebuilt. Um, and also, we might have to have restrictions on our own capacities. Arguably, we might have 100% capacity filled because we've only got X number of seats available in the venue from a safety perspective. So I think supporters will pay to watch their teams. But that will all be about a financial and costing model that makes it worthwhile for everybody to do. So there's going to be more thought and process put into that. But at the moment, we obviously need to build on following upon the advice and working towards the numbers that we can get. Sanjay, how, how do you maintain that emotional connection with an audience in a digital world, particularly in sport where fans have that kind of real tribal you know, togetherness? So, so just as an example, I mean, I'm a big football fan. Sky and BT Sport have, have been adding the crowd noise to their coverage now that the Premier League is, is back, which has made the viewing... A little, a little more bearable than you know when the Bundesliga first came back and the first game was so hard to watch. It, you know, it just felt like a kind of pre-season friendly in an, in, in an empty stadium. You know, what have you been doing now, and how are you going to maintain that that connection? I think, as you said, I mean, the the, the use of that crowd noise is something that, that we've actually been using on, on our cricket as well, uh, which I does. I think that helps the viewing experience. The other thing that we've been doing is is looking at working with Sky on different camera angles. Generally, you see camera angles that always pans out onto the crowds and so on. And, and actually, we've taken a lot of those camera angles out because that's actually not 
a great shot anymore. It's not a great picture. So we, we, we've kind of revised the way that we kind of look at, or Sky have revised the way they, they look at shooting the game. And then with the introduction of sound and so on, then you know that hopefully helps helps the viewing experience. Uh, and that translates all the way into the digital world in terms of we normally just do short format clips and those are the things that we've just been thinking about, you know, how, how do they look for the viewer? So it looks as normal as it possibly can pre-COVID with stereo. Uh, and I think that's probably the only way that you can really try and keep that element of tribalism because, you know, as we all know, sport is reliant on, on atmosphere, it's reliant on crowds, it's reliant on passion. Um, and those are the things that you, you, you kind of don't get when you, when you don't have people in stereo. Elliot, how, how about, I mean, you touched on this earlier in terms of like trying to avoid the, the yellow and, and black tape and, and everything, but, but how about yourself? How, how are you going to kind of recreate that experience, that welcoming feeling when, when people walk in? So Washington, D.C., interestingly, has reopened restaurants. And I got to tell you, there's something amazing about the buzz of conversation. You know, even if your tables are six or eight feet apart, just hearing the aura and the bubble around you is pretty amazing. And you don't know that you missed it till you have it again. And then you're like, oh, I really missed that you know, sitting and eating dinner by myself at my dining table is infinitely less fun. But I think it's going to be about capitalizing on the energy piece. And, you know, Sanjay, as you were speaking, I love cricket, avid cricket watcher. And, you know, a lot of it is even if you don't watch it in person, what we love when we watch cricket is we're all texting each other and messaging each other and teasing each other. And, you know, when you're in compressed timeframes, like, you know, a one day match or in the case of a hundred, even better, right? Because it's even more compressed. I think we are going to have to learn from that and sort of take, find ways to compress the energy. So, you know, when you do come into a place, even if you aren't right up against someone, can you do things with sound? Can you do things with proximity, with visuals? Can you layer people? You know, we've been talking a lot about like screens. There are screens that say, Ugh, don't come near me. And that there are screens that really feel sort of designed and calibrated. So it's, this is my VIP pocket and this is your VIP pocket. I, George and I, a few weeks ago, were talking about a restaurateur in Amsterdam who was testing this concept where, you know, everybody sits in a glass box. And that's your glass box for the evening and you have your meal and they serve your dinner on a beautiful charcuterie board. But I think the point of all of that is how do you sort of deliver individual experiences that are so individual that they really impact you in a sensory way close up, but you're also thriving off the adjacencies of other people. Uh, there was something, I want to say it was, in, it was in New York City, it was in the New York Post last week about how people were doing yoga and in individual bu uh, bubbles, but the bubbles were all together. So your individual space was your own, but you're still part of a tribe or a community. And I think whether it's sports or whether it's hospitality or meetings or, you know, frankly, even shopping, if you can be made to feel like you're part of a community, even if you physically, technically aren't, I think there's something to be said for that. Yeah, I think also to underline what Elia just said about this aspect of sensory, right? So the idea of enhancing sensorial moments. Um, and again, going back to what, what I love about living here in Amsterdam is that the Dutch are very innovative. They really take every opportunity to try something different. And um, there's a, a new concert, well, it's not a new concert hall, it's actually from uh, the 1700s, an 18th century building uh, that's been turned into an event venue. And there's a restaurant in the front, but the restaurant in the front of the, of the building is quite small. Uh, so it doesn't allow for the distancing that needs to take place. And since they can't have these big events right now, they turned the main hall into a restaurant. And they set these tables up in the space with all the distancing that's required. And uh, they serve this kind of predetermined eight course gourmet Michelin star meal inside the space with the most unbelievable audiovisual presentation you can imagine. I mean, they, they give you literally a menu of each theme that the course is based around. 
and you sit down and the first theme was Alice in Wonderland and this whole magical world started taking place. And when the food arrived, it looked like candy, but it was all savory food. I mean, it was just a spectacular evening. And this is what, you know, I, I think this is what we've been talking about is that right now what, what the circumstances are creating is a tremendous amount of creativity and new ways of approaching experience. So here's this event hall that has this incredible audiovisual system stuck into it. It's a beautiful, you know, building from the 18th century. So it has all this gorgeous architecture. And instead of letting it go to waste, they transform it into this pop-up restaurant experience. It's only gonna last till September, but it was really completely unforgettable. I mean, it was absolutely one of the most memorable meals I've had in a long time, both for the quality of the food, but also this immersive, very emotive, exciting experience. And you felt like connected to this whole room of people at the same time, feeling very safe. And that's kind of genius also, because now that you know it's September, there's going to be a lot of people like me who are going to want to sort of try it, right? You're going you're gonna to find a way in your head to be safe about all of it and get over maybe, you know, certain considerations you might have just to go and experience this. That's really clever. And again, it's some, there's something about compressed timelines and compressed energy that I think makes people a little bolder and a little bit braver to at least try something. I think, I think what you just said, you know, I think people are their most creative when they have the most constraints. Absolutely. And I think what's, what's happening, just like Alia said, is like, if you do it right, it doesn't diminish the experience. If you do it right, it actually elevates the experience. And ordinary people can feel very VIP because now all of a sudden they have this personal one-on-one -on -one attention. They have their own private space. They have things that normally you would have to pay a lot of money for. Um, you know, this, this meal that I had with wine pairing, eight courses was a hundred bucks a person. I mean, it's like it was ridiculously inexpensive for what you were getting. And they were more than happy to do that because the restaurant was full of people because everyone wanted to experience a special moment. And it would not have happened if it wasn't for COVID. This is a strange analogy, but I'll make it anyway. You know, if you think back in the history of civilization and cultures and architecture, there was this notion that existed in many parts of the world of a harem. And by, doing, by having a harem and having the partitions, the architectural partitions that were often beautifully detailed, marble, stone, wood, you name it, you were framing points of view. So what you're doing is you're not saying, hey, all of you please co-mingle and connect and socialize. We're going to put these deliberately designed interventions between you. It's not gonna stop you from socializing. It's going to make you a little bit more clever about how you do it. The way you frame the points of view becomes super thoughtful because you're really thinking about those little windows and what you're looking through and what you're seeing and what you're hearing and what you're smelling. So it's a very basic example, but I think if you can activate anticipation through design, through thoughtfulness, through, you know, you walk into a kitchen and you smell the food before you see it and suddenly you're hungry and your mouth is watering. I think there's some basic human instinct that we need to find or trigger to create that anticipation so people will want to go further. I, I, I mentioned earlier that I, I you know, I, I caught up with um, James Raleigh uh, regarding the Wimbledon Tennis Championships and, and Charlotte Williams about Can Lions. So I, I put this question to them um, as well about maintaining an, an emotional connection with the audience. Um, so let's just have a quick listen to what they had to say. Let's start with James. Without the championships running, it was obviously a, a huge challenge for us to to ensure that we maintained a degree of relevance and we felt that that was really important for us to do rather than just doing nothing at all. The announcement was made on terms of cancellation in April and collectively as a team and also working with IBM, our partners across the digital world really, we were sort of worked in a very agile way and, and created the concept of what we're calling Wimbledon Recreated and the greatest championships. And what that entails is we we felt it was really important to try and engage with our fans and, and ask them to participate within a campaign. So we've seen a huge amount of uh, people sort of creating their own their own films, lots of user-generated content around their memories of, of, of Wimbledon, both from just watching far away, uh, but also actually attending as well. So we've seen a, a huge collection of those films coming through. The, in fact, we've been overwhelmed by the numbers that we've seen. And then just to support that across the fortnight itself, 
we created this concept of the greatest championships and what we've done um so collectively our our, our tennis boffins if you like have have selected their favorite matches played on each day of the tournament so our favorite matches from day one day two and 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 we go through the tournament and ultimately we we choose what we see as those greatest matches that have ever been played and that's been uh, live on women.com it's also been across uh, all of our social media channels and in many ways, we followed the greatest championships like it was a live event. So it's been a similar kind of operation, but obviously it's, it's, it's ultimately using our archive content. But what we like to think we've done is we've used that, that archive in a slightly more sort of creative way than just, just literally sort of sending it out. And I think what's made it equally as um, you know, more more powerful really is that so we have great relationships with our key broadcasters. So obviously, the BBC uh, in the UK, ESPN in the US, being sports around France and the Middle East, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We actually took the concepts to to those guys as well, and you would have seen that. You know, certainly in the UK, the BBC has, has featured women and programming both in the day and at night, celebrating you know, great matches that have been played in a similar way to, to how we've done that. So it's been a really sort of joined up approach. And, you know, the, we obviously haven't seen anywhere near the numbers that you would get during a, a typical Wimbledon fortnight. But um, considering there hasn't been a tournament, the, the engagement levels have been, have been pretty good. That's really interesting. And anything else specific for social media that you've launched? Yeah, so we've also got a concept of uh, the Wimbledon wish. And actually, this, this really falls out of what, what we were trying to do when the cancellation was made is be very, you know, show real humility. Because at the end of the day, Whilst we were all incredibly sort of sad about having to cancel the championships, there were so many things happening in the world that that were far more important, obviously. And we wanted to to embrace that. We we had lots of content that we created uh, around yeah the heroes from the NHS. Uh, Roger Federer voiced over a film that we did, and we and that went out pretty pretty soon after the cancellation. And then we also created the Wimbledon Wish concept, where we asked people to to send in their wishes of what Wimbledon could do for them as fans. And I think what that, that has helped us to do is perhaps break down some of the perceptions of Wimbledon being, you know, effect, effectively and slightly elitist maybe in the, in the sports uh, of tennis has, has suffered with that a little bit. So I think it tried to show that we are a lot more open, uh, much more accessible. And the, the, I mean, the numbers of wishes that we've had come through have, have outstripped any other Promotion certainly that I've ever been involved in, and yeah, a lot of ticket requests as you could imagine, but also some pretty interesting stuff as well. And then what we've also done as well, which is another first, we were planning on doing this even if the championships would have been running, was to do the creation of a mobile game. It's it's got a retro feel, so it fits with the sort of the archive focus that we have with the with the greatest championships. It's you would you'd recognise the game. It was um, I think it was Arkanoid in the in the nineties. It turned into Alleyway I think in the in the two thousands. And it's it's got this lovely retro feel. We put a, a Wimbledon theme to it. Very shareable. Not a great use of words in this current time. Very viral. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, and and we've seen some you know again really really strong numbers. And what we've been trying to do within that as well is trying to generate you know sign up to to our CRM tool, um, my Wimbledon. And uh, you know, signups have been uh, been really, really good. And I think what we've what we've been able to do with it this year is is prove a concept. So I think it's certainly something that we'll be looking at uh, for next year as well. So before we um, we hear from Charlotte on uh, Can Lions, George, thoughts on on what James had to say? Yeah, I think uh, James had something very interesting to say about creativity again. You know, going and looking at new ways of handling uh, very traditional. Um, in this case, uh, a very aspirational event, right? I mean, Wimbledon's, in a way, is kind of like a luxury sport. It's a very elite, kind of high-level, high-brow moment in the world of sports. And I think that COVID is accelerating this accessibility aspect. So it's not only transforming behavior, but it's also transforming what what consumers consider aspirational. I think the world of luxury in particular is being completely shaken up by what is happening in terms of going back to what Sanjay, you know, mentioned about kind of a recalibration of what's important in life and looking at, you know, what is it that you really want and what is it that's really aspirational. And, and I love that, you know, James mentioned that, you know, this, this Wimbledon wish 
uh, activation that they created is creating this more accessibility to people and, and that it isn't Wimbledon isn't this far removed difficult thing to attend that uh, it can be part of everybody's lives and I think that that's a, a really nice thing and maybe when we talk about retail a little bit more we can talk about this kind of transformation of aspiration and what it means going forward for brands definitely okay well well um let's first of all here as i said from from charlotte so she's talking about the same issue um but in relation to the uh the marketing event can lions we are trying to be something a little bit different we realize that people spend all their working day at the moment on on zoom calls and what we wanted to do was create a, a virtual event that didn't look like a zoom fest and that's how we tried to create that strong emotional connection with our audience. So some of the stuff we've produced with our partners, our our content collaborators, if you like, are really visually interesting short films and Netflix quality documentaries on creativity. Being Can Lies, we've obviously got the, the benefit of working with some of the most creative companies in the world. We didn't just want to have talking heads to camera. We wanted really visually beautiful films that people are going to you know take time out to watch and engage with and that's really paid off in the results that we've seen we've seen really strong engagement people viewing content for a a really high amount of time and people coming back to view more video every day because we're still publishing new videos every day yeah i'm not i'm not surprised because i obviously i've had a look at, at some of the content and it's it it really is very well produced but the question i was going to ask is it's all free. And and why did you make that decision to open up the content to anyone? Yeah, so we made the decision quite quickly. I mean, obviously, we, we've all lost track of time a bit, I think, during the quarantine. But we made the decision very quickly to pivot to a digital event. And what we felt is that it was a real opportunity for Can Lions to reach our global audience and allow people to experience the festival when previously it can be quite cost prohibitive. I mean, it's very expensive to fly to Cannes and be put up in a hotel in Cannes. So what we wanted to do is use this opportunity to really engage like an audience who we perhaps might not engage with, a younger audience, a really global audience. We have people sign up from 140 countries from around the world. And that for us has been brilliant. Obviously, we've been able to capture their data but we haven't charged them a penny. And I think it's it's showing them what the Lions brand is, a, is about, perhaps changing some perceptions as to what Can Lions is about, and also getting them to, you know, to experience our products, really. So it's been very positive for us. And George, uh, thoughts on Charlotte's comments there? Um, yeah, I think, it, again, it comes back to accessibility. Um, you know, the Con Lion event is a very exclusive event, again. And here, you know, it's this democratization of these aspirational events and moments. And I think COVID has really accelerated. That was a trend anyways that was happening within this kind of world, like let's we'll call it luxury. And now it's accelerated even further. And I think the wonderful thing Uh, is that it's opening up entirely new markets maybe that they couldn't have normally have reached. And I think for these events, they're creating awareness among people who would normally not even be aware of what Conlion is, you know, or even Wimbledon for that matter. I mean, young people nowadays don't even, don't have those kinds of contexts anymore. So I, I think that COVID has helped reach a much broader audience uh, because of the, the digital platforms. And I think in turn, those events that would normally not reach those people have been able to expand their, their audience for the future. Yeah, I think you've picked up on on a really good link actually between those those two uh, those two clips. I want to change the uh, the subject very slightly. We've seen on the news, you know, through things like the protest marches, and and here in the UK, just a few weeks ago, we had sudden hot weather, and thousands of people headed down to the south coast, and we've now got the reopening of the pubs, and there was videos being shared from London, and what what chaos that that looked like on certain streets, you know in certain cases, little concern for social distancing, public safety, huge environmental impact caused by the mess left behind on on some of these places. The question I want to ask you, you know, as as the ones organising these events, if you're encouraging people to get together again after, you know, lots of time not being together, how how much of that responsibility lies on, on your shoulders to ensure that 
everyone is behaving themselves and acting responsibly. Um, Sanjay, let's let's start with you. I think all the responsibility lies on us, as uh, certainly in my world as the the event organizer. Uh, I think it's really really important as well that whatever event it is, people people follow those those guidelines because at the end of the day, we have to be seen as a, a responsible um, event, and, and the government need to be comfortable that we can put on these events and we're not and public safety you know is still our, our number one outcome so the the, the responsibility lies with us uh, I think things you, you know you can do to control is things like thinking about um, crowd flow and crowd movement simple things around making sure that you've got enough stewards and you've got enough people to manage the event um, is really really important and then again communication to people coming into the ground so you can't expect people to turn up and then automatically know what to do you've got to be communicating those things before they get to the ground when they're in the ground during they're in the ground and then you've got to be help help guide them through right and at the end of the day that is in itself you know it's quite a logistical operation that is required but it'll be absolutely essential for for sports coming back on alia you know, I think it's also how you do it, right? We could stand here and be like, be safe, wear your mask, step aside, do all of this stuff. And I think there's something around tone of voice. Um, I was reading one of our manuals yesterday, actually. So like the W Hotels food and beverage team have pulled together a series of guidelines. And, you know, one little thing that kind of stayed with me, when you come to one of our places, once you sit down, they give you a little bag for you to put your mask into. So they're saying, please wear a mask as you go through the space. Once you sit down and you can take it off, let me give you this thing. I've thought about this for you so that you're not leaving your mask on the table and it's getting dirty. I'm offering you an opportunity for this. Or when I present you with the check, let me give you a Purell wipe. Let me just add that extra layer in. And you know, it's the thoughtfulness with which we do it. And thoughtfulness doesn't cost money. It's just thought. Um, I went to dinner last night and as I was entering the restaurant, you know, and we were sitting on a courtyard, the maitre d' like lovely. And he came up and he was like, thank you so much for wearing your mask till you sit down at the table, not put your masks on and please don't take them off. It's a positive reinforcement. And, you know, now more than ever, I think up until this point, I'm certainly guilty of this between firing off emails and texts and WhatsApps and what have you, and just go, 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 got to get it done. You forget the art of the tone of voice and how you communicate things and how you request things and how even when you have to have maybe less than comfortable conversations, you can navigate all of that with the choice of word that you use or even body language, you know? And I think that's going to be an interesting part of how we turn some of this corner particularly in societies where unfortunately they still think that this is a hoax and they don't want to wear masks. Like, you know, how do you use the power of persuasion, the art of language, body language, thoughtfulness, sequencing, all of these things to get people on the bus? That's going to be, I think, an interesting moment to navigate. George, you were nodding along all the way through that. What's, what, well, I, what's... I think what Elias said is incredibly powerful. I mean, especially in the world of retail. You know, it, there is there 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 should be an invitation, not a demand, and it's a big difference. You know, they say you can attract you can attract more flies with honey than you know with other things. So I think the the what Elias said about being kind and using psychology with positive reinforcement will help transform these events. I mean, you know, Amsterdam uh, had a huge BLM protest. Uh, 5,000 people showed up at the square. 5,000 people showed up at the square, all wearing masks, all standing apart. There was hardly any police. This sense of society also is extremely important, that you are a collective, that you are together, and that you're all in it together. And I think what was interesting about the protests here is that they did not become violent. They did not require a tremendous amount of police. Everyone protested. It was incredibly powerful. Everyone was heard, but everyone was very, I, I wouldn't say the word behaved, but, you know, they understood that, that, that they were a collective and that they didn't want the infection rate to skyrocket. So everyone showed up with their masks. Everyone did exactly what they were supposed to do. They made themselves known about, 
you know, this horrible thing that's happening in terms of rights. And they all left and it was a very positive experience overall. So, you know, the psychology of all of this is incredibly important. I love what Elias said. I think it's so true. You know, I, you need to wear your mask the second you walk in, you know, and like, you know, be very demanding about it. Because then immediately it creates tension versus welcoming hospitality. Yeah, it's, so, it's so true. It's part of your brand, part of your experience, part of what you're offering. Um, and, and actually, I think what we've seen up until now is the kind of fear factor. You must do this, otherwise you are in danger. Um, and, you know, going back to right from the start where Ali said all about the signage and so on, it's just it's provoking fear. And actually, that's just got to flip. Um, and I think we'll see now events, brands, etc., are just going to have to think about how they, how they message um, in, in a much more positive, open, friendly, encouraging way rather than, rather than a way that strikes fear. And the power of that to connect customers to brands. I mean, what Elia just said about, you know, getting the little Purell wipe after you get your ticket. I love that. I mean, I would go back to the W because it feels like they care about me versus just like, okay, well, here's your ticket. Make sure, do you have sanitizer? What, you know, it's just like, it's very, it's very thoughtful and it almost feels like they're, you know, already taking into consideration the fears and the issues you have of, of a customer being there to begin with. And so it makes you feel even more comfortable. George, are there any clients that you're working with at the moment or, or any others that, that you've seen from other industries that you've been impressed with in terms of how they are focusing on, on brand transformation to adapt to this new environment? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot going on. And, and like I said earlier, I think COVID has accelerated a lot of the trends that we're already starting to see prior to the pandemic. I think in particular, the world of beauty is very much on the pulse of, of consumer behavior. And I, there's a couple of examples, I think, there that really uh, are showing how this combination or this fluidity between the virtual and the IRL world, how easily they kind of flow together. And the brands that are navigating that are the ones that are really creating success for themselves. In particular, NYX, I don't know how many people out there are familiar with that brand. It's part of the L'Oreal group. They like to position themselves as a youthful MAC cosmetic uh, brand. And they are looking at their brand as uh, entertainment in terms of their position. So I thought that was a really fascinating way of looking at uh, how do you create this kind of community around a brand using things like Netflix, for example. So Nix uh, sponsored uh, Sabrina Teenage Witch and used that program to create this whole world around their brand. And again, you know, emphasizing the digital aspect uh, versus the, the in-store aspect and how that kind of translated over into the IRL experience. You know, another, you know, great example of that type of mentality are the brands that are digital natives. So um, I don't know how many of people out there are familiar with Patrick Starr, who's a uh, social media beauty celebrity. He's just launched a new cosmetic brand called One Size that is really about complete inclusivity. So he's a gender fluid individual who transforms himself into this very beautiful person, neither male nor female. He has a huge following online, many, many millions of followers who uh, look at his beauty tips and how to apply and become, you know, a much more attractive individual. And he's launching his, his uh, brand in Sephora. So he has this very high digital presence that can reach a very broad audience, a little bit like, you know, the sports events and the other things that we've been talking about. Um, but then you can also go into a physical space like Sephora and purchase it if you'd like. And again, Sephora also has a huge online community as well. Um, so this kind of fluidity between the brick and mortar and the digital is a trend that was happening prior to COVID and now has been accelerated dramatically, uh, in particular in the world of, of beauty. Um, but, you know, other brands just like McDonald's as well, also going to complete contactless payment, being able to order food um, through your mobile device before you go into the store and just picking it up, picking it up there or having it obviously, you know, home delivery, which is an obvious thing. But nevertheless, um, you know, the world of, of kind of these 
digital communities, let's call them, that, that flow between real life and virtual life is becoming more prevalent. The gaming communities in particular uh, are creating these entire events. I don't know if you know uh, what Fortnite is. It's this uh, huge, multi, I think billions of players at this point. Um, and Travis Scott, who's a rapper, launched his album in Fortnite as an, as an avatar. And he had 23 million people, quote unquote, attending his concert event on Fortnite. So I think those are the kinds of things that we're going to be seeing more in the future. I mean, maybe even potentially sports games will be played in these kinds of virtual realms. But then at the same time, we're also linking back to the physical world. So that kind of fluidity, I think, is, is the trend for the future, that, that indefinable, because everyone you know, talks about omni-channel, but it, it's not really omni-channel at all anymore. It's about consumer channel. And the digital natives in particular are incredibly fluid between virtual and, and real life. And they, they move between the two as if they're the same thing. And I think that that is the biggest difference now post-COVID is that there's more people who are accustomed now to dealing with that kind of fluidity between those two worlds. Excellent. The, the last area I want to focus on is the plans that you're all putting in place to, to future-proof your businesses. Now, I'm going to give you a, a second to think about it because uh, before I ask for your thoughts, here's what Charlotte and James had to say about their plans for 2021's Can Lions and Wimbledon, respectively. Well, we've learned a lot this year. We talk to our customers all the time about, you know, what the festival and the shape of the festival should be. We work very closely with our, our community. In terms of what the festival will look like next year, I think obviously there are still question marks around the shape of the festival and what, what the laws will be and what the, you know, the recommendations will be for next year. Um, but we'll work closely with the authorities and with the you know, the French authorities and, of course, anyone else we need to listen to to ensure a safe festival. I think you can, you know, expect the usual stages for, for Can Lions. I mean, whether that means we have to take people out of the theatres and move them back in to adhere to any sort of health and safety regulations, we'll do that. But you can still expect the same magic that you would always get from the festival you know, the same, the same high profile speakers and creative agencies from all around the world will still be bringing those together. So, I mean, as you can imagine, there's a huge amount of planning now. Um, we, we, we have to, without wanting to sound flippant, we are, we are hoping for the best, but planning, planning for the worst. Uh, we're having to be very, very agile because this is changing literally all, all, of, all of the time. But there'll be scenarios put in place around you know what does what does a, a Wimbledon look like with reduced capacities looking at you know we've looked at two meters now we're obviously looking at one meter as well what what kind of impact that's going to have on capacity but we're uh, you know if the worst comes to the worst what does it be behind closed closed doors we're these are all things that we're having to to plan for and, and, and look at because if we didn't we'd be we'd be ultimately being pretty irresponsible but of course as I say we are hoping for the best and we hope to be able to deliver a Wimbledon as close to the one that we all know and love. Sanjay uh, your plans for uh, for the coming year? Well we, we've already started uh, future proofing so we've managed to get uh, cricket back on and it's in a, a behind closed doors a complete biosecure environment so you know that that from all the way in terms of making sure that you've got all your players, all your staff, everything uh, completely quarantined for a period of time, and then playing the game and then testing and all those things. So we're well on our way to making sure that we can survive uh, post-COVID uh, if if restrictions aren't lifted. But we we are anticipating that restrictions will be lifted. Um, and then it's also about thinking about, you know, how do we get fans back in stadia uh, in ways that we've, we spoke about earlier uh, and then hopefully at some stage get back to the normal. But uh, we, we, again, there's, no, there's not going to be a normal for us because hopefully we're going to think about how we've reimagined, recreated uh, and thinking about our customer experience. So when people come back to cricket and when people attend the 100 for the first time, it's something that they will thoroughly enjoy. 
Do, do you think it's almost a chance for sports to have a bit of a reset? I think sports will reset um, because the inevitable uh, impact of COVID is going to be a significant loss of revenue. Uh, and w- when you have a significant loss of revenue, you have to rethink uh, your business model um, and you have to rethink uh, your cost base. Uh, and again, there, there'll be sports will do that in different ways. I think the the simple way to do that is simply cut costs and go to the lowest common denominator. But actually what you probably need to do is do both cut costs, but also then think about how you genuinely get creative. Think about innovation in your sport think about new ways to make money and I think the sports that will um, come out of this crisis in a better way are the sports that will take take those kind of proactive approaches uh, and not simply just go down the cost-cutting exercise. Um, Alia, for, for your industry and, and Marriott? You know, do you, do you all remember the time before you could travel when you didn't have to take your shoes off, when you didn't have X amount of liquids Um, I think the thing that we as a collective have to remember is human beings adapt much faster than we give them credit for. You put a few rules into place, you create a tempo, you create a pattern, you go into any airport in the world now and you'll see people taking off their shoes, pulling out their laptops, and it's happening pretty seamlessly. So when you think about that, I think, you know, as a collective, we obviously have to continue to find ways to make people feel safe. But I think this is our opportunity to also try new things. You know, what are those things that we're going to do in guest rooms that maybe we didn't need before? Or what are those, you know, approaches or tactics? You know, maybe it's less about clutter, less objects in a room. Maybe it's cleaner, brighter, more timeless surfaces. It's, um, you know, how we work in public areas, how we get a coffee or a cocktail. I think we as a collective have a little bit of work to do right now up ahead But I have faith that if you find ways to build memory and stimulate the senses, I think we'll be able to get everyone along for the ride as long as they feel safe. Excellent. Uh, George, final thoughts on this? I I completely agree uh, with, you know, especially what Alia just said now uh, about adaptability. I think what we're looking at is COVID has been an impetus. It's been the, the trigger that has created or accelerated these new behaviors. Uh, the behaviors were a lot of the behaviors that we're seeing are being enforced by this pandemic because of this kind of issue of of infection. But once that's gone, and it will be gone because we've had pandemics in the past before, and they do eventually go away, or or they transform into something less less toxic. We're going to end up with a bunch of people who are now are completely used to doing things in a different way, much more digitally savvy in terms of a larger population base. Um, using experiences that they've never used before, like the the different type of digital worlds that are being created around these brands and these different types of experiences. And it's going to definitely leave a a mark in terms of pushing the world closer towards what the future vision would have been. And unfortunately, there's a lot of businesses that are suffering hugely financially. Um, Some of them maybe were around a little bit longer than they needed to be. And I think COVID has accelerated that kind of transformation of the landscape. It's painful. Transformations always are. But I think in the end, we're going to come out, hopefully, with a much more positive world. Uh, People who are much more democracy in terms of the sense of, of accessibility to things that used to be quite elite, now more accessible and easy to get to. You know, Sanjay and Elia have said, I completely wholeheartedly agree. But we also can't forget, this is not going to be around forever, uh, that what, what it is, it's, it's creating and initiating a lot of change more quickly than we had anticipated. George, before we close, if uh, listeners want to find out more about um, some of the work uh, you and the, and the rest of the Future Brand teams are doing in this space, where's the best place for them to go? Um, if they'd like to reach us, they can reach us digitally <laughs> uh, through info at uxus.com so if they send an email there um, I will more than likely get it 
So thanks once again to all our guests. So Alia Khan, George Gottall and Sanjay Patel, plus James Raleigh, Charlotte Williams and John Timms for their contributions too. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this topic. If you'd like to contribute to the discussion, you can do that on our Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram or Twitter feeds. Those are all linked from the top of the website at csuitepodcast.com, where you'll also find all our previous shows and supporting show notes, plus links to where you can subscribe for automatic downloads of each episode via your favourite podcast app. And if you've liked what you've heard, then please do give us a positive rating and review. Uh, You can also contribute to the discussion on Future Brands LinkedIn pages or Twitter feed where they shared this podcast as well. Uh, Just to repeat the email address that George gave out, if you want to get in touch with him and his team, it's info at uxus.com. There's also a generic email for Future Brand. You can also use hello at futurebrand.com as well. Uh, Finally, if you'd like to get in touch with this show, uh, you can do that via our contact form at csuitepodcast.com or you can reach me via Twitter using at Russ Goldsmith or you can find me on LinkedIn. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.